Scripture reading comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verses 16, all the way through chapter 4, verse 3. You can find it in your bulletin and uh, follow along as it's being read aloud. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so does the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity." All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed... And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. I want to welcome everyone uh, to Good News Church uh, for our worship service. It's uh, good to see everyone and good to be here worshiping um, with you. Uh, before we launch off into today's message, let's bow our heads in prayer and ask the Lord to grant us illumination uh, by the power of His Spirit. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Father, we ask that you would grant us illumination by your Holy Spirit, uh, the Spirit that communicates truth to us. Give us eyes to see ears to hear, um, hearts to receive, and transform us um, as we come before your word. Uh, may that word make us more and more like Christ and change our worldview and help us to know that in Christ uh, there's a fullness of meaning and in Christ we can please you. Uh, so be with the preaching and the hearing of your word uh, today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, when Pastor Sam, a couple of months ago, said that we'll be studying the book of Ecclesiastes, um, I did what most people would do. I read the book of Ecclesiastes several times. I know that it would come my time to preach, and my time to preach is today. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, chapter 4. And what I did this week is I reread this book uh, probably three, four, maybe even five times. Uh, it's a fascinating book. It's a book that uh, makes you think a lot. But at the same time, to be completely transparent and honest uh, with all of you, uh, the preacher here is a bit annoying. Uh, not only is he a bit annoying, but this is not the type of person that you would want to invite uh, to a dinner party. Or if you're going to a wedding like I did last week, you would not want to sit in the same table um, as this person because this person will be really a Debbie Downer and say everything is um, meaningless. Wisdom, meaningless. Um, righteousness, meaningless. Uh, wealth, Meaningless toil, meaningless seeking of honor, meaningless 
everything under the sun meaningless. Everything is vanity. But then I began to think a little more, and from the viewpoint of this person, everything does begin to make perfect sense. Because something that Christianity says, if you're looking for something to satisfy you, it's that very thing that will not satisfy you. Therefore, if you're looking for wisdom, wisdom won't satisfy you. If you're looking for joy, joy won't satisfy you. If you're looking for honor and you receive honor, that won't satisfy you. In fact, there's an inverse relationship. If you're looking for honor... What's going to happen? You'll always feel as though you don't have enough honor. If you're looking for wealth and you love money and you want to accumulate, you will not ever feel rich, but you will actually feel poor. If you're looking to beautify yourself, what will happen is you will never feel beautiful. In fact, you will be completely insecure and you will feel ugly. Uh, recently, I got back from um, Asia, and that's one of the things I think that South Korea is uh, going through. There's a lot of insecurity. Why? Because they're not seeking after the things of God. What they're seeking after are worldly things, and because of that, it makes them very insecure. Uh, but we don't have to go all the way to Seoul, Korea to say that. We can say that here, right here in New York. I remember one of my minister friends a while ago um, told me that every time he comes into New York and he didn't grow up in New York, he feels so ugly and he feels so poor because New York is a city of beautiful people and New York is a city of wealth. And if you see yourself as a beautiful person or you see yourself as a wealthy person, then of course you're going to feel ugly and and of course, you're going to feel poor. And all of this is indicative of our hearts. Our hearts are created for God and satisfaction and contentment and meaning and everything else will only be found in knowing God. And more specifically, from a New Testament perspective, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that happens, there is true identity. When that happens, there is true security. When that happens, there's a contentment of the soul. When we look at this letter, um, not this letter, but this book, in this portion of scripture, um, the, the preacher here uh, talks about justice. And his comments are, I've seen something under the sun. And he goes and talks about justice. And because he doesn't see justice, he begins to say that this too is meaningless. In verse 16, in the place of justice, what does he see? He sees wickedness. And in the place of um, where there's supposed to be a brightness and righteousness, what does he see? He sees wickedness. And when we jump to verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, he continues on this theme, and he says, He's seen the tears of those who are oppressed, and no one comforts them. And in fact, the oppressors are the ones who have power, which means those who are oppressed lack power. And when he puts that all together, everything is meaningless. And therefore, no wonder he concludes, at least temporarily, on this note, he congratulates the dead. The dead are better than the living, but there is still one even more blessed, or a better lot, and that is never to be born. No wonder, he goes on to say a couple chapters later, don't be excessively righteous, don't be overly wise, why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked either, or don't be a fool. Why would you die before your time? 
nothing new. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes says no matter what you look at under the sun, it's been done. There's wickedness that thrives. Um, the lot of the fool is the same as the lot of the, of the wise one. The lot of the righteous is the same as the lot of the unrighteous. Or to use the language of the preacher in this chapter, the lot of the beast is the same thing as the light of life of the human. And therefore, once again, everything is meaningless. I think we need to pause for a second and ask ourselves, is what the preacher is saying true? And I think if we contemplate this uh, line of reasoning just for a little moment, uh, we can say that there are a couple of, I think, very important insights. On the one hand, we can say that uh, the preacher is depicting reality, and therefore, in some sense, what he says is filled with wisdom and is true. Uh, justice and wickedness oftentimes are interchangeable in our world, and in our world that is filled with sin, or we can say our broken world on account of sin, is topsy-turvy at times. And some of the great prophets uh, within um, our tradition have said the same thing, such as uh, the great prophet Isaiah. The great prophet Isaiah has this wonderful verse in chapter 5, and it reads this, like this. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So even in Isaiah's time, things are topsy-turvy. Certain people are calling that which is evil good and that which is good evil. And certain people are saying that which is dark is actually light and vice versa. And certain people are saying that which is bitter is actually sweet and vice versa. And I think if we look at our world today, I think uh, this resonates with our hearts. It resonates with our hearts because we live in a fallen world. And within that fallen world, at times things are topsy-turvy, and therefore things that are dark, people embrace as if they are light. And those things that are light are shunned as if it should be practiced in the darkness. And I don't want to go into controversial issues because that's not the, the import of my message. But at the same time, I think we can make a couple of points here. Uh, if you live in New York City, one of the, the things that this ethos uh, represents is a love for animals. And therefore, if you walk down any of the streets, you will see all these animal lovers with their dogs and cleaning up after their dogs and loving dogs. And I'm a person who really loves dogs. I grew up with three or four dogs, and they were always within my life. So I care for dogs. I love dogs. I like playing with dogs. But at the same time, I think it's a bit excessive when it comes to New York. Because if we were a stranger visiting New York and just taking notes as a sociologist would, then I think we would conclude that many people value the lives of animals more than they value the lives of humans. And therefore, things like starvation um, in our world, it's not addressed as much as taking care of animals. That's just one case in point where things are topsy-turvy. Things are inverted within our society, and I don't think I have to spell it out. All you need to do is open your eyes, evaluate your own value system, 
evaluate the value system of the world in which we live, and Isaiah's words would ring true. Another example comes from what our, our worship leader Peter said about persecution. Uh, Christianity is about light. Christianity is about love. Christianity is about a love that is sacrificial. Christianity is about free grace and unconditional love. Yet in some places in the world, it's uh, persecuted. And just to sing the name of Christ or raise the banner of Christ, there is great persecution. Again, the words of Isaiah ring true once again. Darkness is light, and light is darkness in our world. I think Ecclesiastes here then has a point. Sometimes when we see this brokenness in our world, we can't help but agree. If you take another step, uh, the conclusion of um, Ecclesiastes, that too resonates in our, our hearts, that it is better not to be born. Now, we have a lot of families at church now, a lot of little children, and I don't know if you parents are like me. I don't know if you went through the same thing I went through thinking about our world. Um, I was a minister. I had a strong doctrine of human depravity. I had a strong understanding or belief um, in the evils of this world. And therefore, when we, Mimi and I had children, uh, there was a moment of hesitation. Not that we don't love children, but at the same time, the question was, do we really want to bring children into this world knowing what they will have to face as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we really want that? And again, the words of Ecclesiastes resonates. Who are the most blessed? Those who've never been born. Maybe the book of Ecclesiastes then has insight. Maybe it is true. Maybe this world is so filled with vanity that the wisest thing is not to bring a life into our world, and that's the best thing that we can do as Christians. I think there's another temporary conclusion in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I think it really is a, a nice Greek notion from the Greco-Roman world, and it coincides uh, with the preacher in Ecclesiastes. And his basic point is, don't be too radical. Be moderate in everything that you do. And that's one of the, th uh, the threads that goes throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes never says, be bad as you can because everything is meaningless. Ecclesiastes doesn't say that. It doesn't say, get drunk and in that drunken stupor do everything your heart desires. That line of reasoning is not there. But what is there is... Don't be too good. At the same time, don't be too bad. The book of Ecclesiastes says, don't play the, the role of the fool because it's funny. And he says, don't be the fool uh, or play the role of the fool because in the end you're going to die. Uh, as one of these uh, silly movies on Hollywood and uh, being foolish is funny. It doesn't say that. But it does say, don't be too wise. Don't be too foolish. Don't be too righteous. Don't be too unrighteous. It really sounds like the wisdom of the ancient Greeks. It's the radical middle. 
because if you are excessive, you might, according to the Greek notion, uh, be characterized by hubris, and the gods may take notice of you and strike you dead. Uh, but if, in the reverse, uh, you don't stand up for yourself, then you will never be uh, a good member uh, within a polis or a city. So be right in the middle. And in some ways, that resonates with our hearts as well, does it not? Have a simple life. Don't be too religious. Don't be too sold out for the things of God. Just take it easy. Attend church and work hard and carve out a good life for yourself, and that's all you really need to do. Maybe, once again, uh, the preacher is dripping with wisdom, and we're supposed to soak these things in. Now, I think um, the three examples that I gave, I did say that it resonates with us, because there's an element of, of, of truth. But at the same time... I don't think that is the function of this book. The reason why this is not the function of this book is when we read the whole book in its entirety, uh, there's only one name of God that is used. Um, and it is not the name of God that we would expect. Because when you look at the Old Testament, you can call God Elohim, which is basically the creator God. And there is Yahweh, the covenantal God. Or to put it this way, Elohim is the one who created all things, and he is this general deity for all people. And Yahweh is the one who discloses himself and makes promises to the people of God. And not only makes promises to the people of God, as we follow the trajectory of the Old Testament, he comes down to the people of God. He loves the people of God. He calls them to himself. He makes his abode with them. He gives them wonderful promises and protects them and provides for them, leads them out of bondage towards a promised land, has greater promises, and he ultimately promises grace. And when we follow that to the New Testament, this Yahweh reveals himself in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's Christ who comes into our world, lives a sinless life, dies upon the cross, rises again from the dead, and will ultimately usher us into his presence. And in the meantime, he is perfecting his bride, namely the church. And therefore, I think the way the book of Ecclesiastes here, all these points... Uh, and the way it's structured, all of these things are saying, in view of a theology that is rooted in Elohim, well, this is reasonable. If God doesn't make wonderful promises to you, if God is not a God of grace to you, if God doesn't disclose himself as a God of love through Christ Jesus, then why even have children? Why would you want to bring children into this world? It's better probably not to live. If all we have is a picture of a creator God and that's it, why be too wise? When you die, they're going to forget about you. Why kill yourself in being so wise? 
Why kill yourself in being so righteous? Why kill yourself in being so generous? A wiser approach would probably be to take that middle approach so that at least you have a chance of a secure and comfortable life where the eyes of envy won't be upon you and you will miss the detection of other people because rivalry is talked right after this, which motivates people, and you might have a comfortable life. You see, Ecclesiastes uh, makes sense, and this counsel makes sense if your conception of God is just Elohim, just a creator God. But if your understanding of God is the one who reveals himself in Christ, everything begins to change. So the question is, how does it begin to change? What are some insights here? Three things, and we'll close. Number one, I think it's important to see this distinction, and it's important to see this distinction because, number one, it helps us to understand the non-believer. But I think we can say also this, it helps us also to understand ourselves. And this is really important. Um, because on the one hand, you have the non-believer. And the non-believer, the best I think the non-believer can do is to reason like the book of Ecclesiastes. That is as consistent as a non-believer can be. And the non-believer, the, the most noble he or she can be is the book of Ecclesiastes, right? Don't be too righteous. Don't be too unrighteous. Take the radical middle, right? Uh, enjoy your work as much as you can. Uh, enjoy the good pleasures that you have uh, as your lot in life. Uh, enjoy your husband, enjoy your wife, enjoy your children, and that's pretty much it. Now, why do I say it's also helpful for us? Because oftentimes when the book of Ecclesiastes or this type of philosophy resonates in our hearts, and sometimes it resonates a little too much, and when that happens, then we can use that as a litmus test. And what do I mean, what do I mean by litmus test? What I mean is, then we are not reasoning in view of the self-disclosure of God in Christ Jesus. So we too are functionally living our lives as if we worship a creator rather than a redeemer. Now I think this is true for believers, right? And this is specifically addressing believers. Because if we believe that we shouldn't be too radical in our pursuit of God. We shouldn't be too generous because we have to hold some things for ourselves. If we feel as though we shouldn't be too righteous um, with our lives and we shouldn't be too wise and sometimes we should play the role of the fool and we should live for now, not later, then the way we are reasoning is in view of a creator God not a creator God who simultaneously redeems us through his Son. And therefore, the vestige of that reasoning is still in our hearts as we have a wrong conception of who God is. And therefore, not only can we understand the non-believer, we can understand ourselves. And I wonder if we, 
um, living in New York have uh, taken in too much of the philosophy of New York, and therefore that's changing the way we live and changing the way we order our lives and changing the way we see our calling. Because we must take assessment of our own hearts and make a decision to live our lives not in view of a mere creator. We have to live in view of a creator who also redeems and will also ultimately consummate all things through Christ. Because if we do, then our lives become different. And we, we're not stuck in this meaninglessness that the, the book of Ecclesiastes speaks of. The second point is this. Uh, what punctuates uh, the book of Ecclesiastes at times is this understanding of enjoy the things that God has given to you. And I think there's genuine insight there. And uh, when you couple that with uh, the New Testament and some of Paul's teachings, um, I think this applies to the believer as well. Um, God is the author of everything good. Uh, he gives good gifts uh, to his children so that we can use them with thankfulness um, in our hearts. And therefore, there are times in our lives where there is a lot of goodness, this favor, the favor of God. And at that moment, we're, we, we can't be dour. Right? Uh, we can't be these Debbie Downers and say, we shouldn't enjoy any of these things uh, because we have to live for eternity. That's to miss the point. Uh, because God, um, as a good father, gives us good gifts at times, uh, gives us times of rest, times of favor. And at that point, I think the righteous thing to do, uh, the right thing to do, the noble thing to do is to say, thank you, I praise you, God, in view of your bounty. I praise you, God, in view of your goodness. I praise you for your gifts. Um, I love the giver more than the gifts, but I praise you for the gifts, and you use the gifts, and you enjoy the gifts to the glory of God. Just like the Apostle Paul says, whether we eat or drink, we do it for the glory of God, so Paul can eat and enjoy food and drink and enjoy drink, and he can do it simultaneously for the glory of God. And therefore, there should be a robust free, freeness or a freedom in our hearts to enjoy the good gifts of God that come down to us because God is our Father. It's common grace. It's the things that God gives to both believers and unbelievers, and we can enjoy them with thankfulness in our hearts. And therefore, I want to set some of you free if you need to be free and enjoy God's good gifts. But then we come here to the crux of the matter, and this is our final point. This, I think, clinches everything. And um, I think the, the voice of one who believes in Yahweh comes out at the end of this book, and this is what it says. Now that all has been heard, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, Keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. I think that's the conclusion of the matter. There will be a day of reckoning where we go before God. And we will give an account of how we have lived. Now, this is not a very popular teaching. Uh, not too many people... Um, teach this, but when we look at the pages of the New Testament, it's there all over the place. Uh, 
And it's there in some very, let's say, unusual situations where we would not expect it. And yet, it's there. And Paul is looking forward to it. And he is encouraging people on account of it. So it is not something to take away joy. It is not something to uh, coax you into fearing and therefore doing good. It's a motivator to do good and not to lose heart in view of the beautiful fact and the glorious fact that we will come before God. And therefore, Paul writes, for example, to the Galatians who were sidetracked uh, by false teaching. And because of that, they're discouraged and going in the wrong way. And Paul has to lay in heavy on them. And he drives his shoulder into them. And he rebukes them. And he comes out like a roaring lion, rebuking and challenging the Galatians. But at the end, he wants them to persist. And he wants them to continue. And what does he say? Let us not lose heart in doing good. Uh, for in due time, if we continue to do good, we will reap. So he's saying, continue to do good. Put your heart into it. Don't lose heart. Persist to the end. Because if you do this, there will be a harvest. Now, to be sure, their good deeds, their heart, uh, will not be perfect. Yet at the same time, there will be a harvest. Because God is behind that harvest and he is one that is good. He says the same thing to the Corinthians. Now picture this. The Corinthians, and I said this before, the worst congregation on the face of the earth in the first century, and I don't think I'm exaggerating. There's not too many churches, not too many uh, communities of faith during this time. By far the worst is the church of Corinthians. I don't need to go into details. All you need to do is to read First and Second Corinthians, and they're almost doing nothing right. And what does the apostle Paul say to them? Well, you wouldn't expect him to say this, but he says exactly this. And he's, therefore, we have as our ambition. So Paul is saying, this is what motivates me. This is my ambition. Whether I am at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all be here before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for whatever he do does. So the Apostle Paul is saying, my motivation, my ambition, no matter where I am, is to please Jesus. Because one day we will all come before the judgment seat of Christ and we may be recompensed by how we lived. From a broader perspective, he's also encouraging the Corinthians to live this type of way. The worst congregation, he's telling them, live well, Corinthians, and you can live well. Because there is this awesome truth that I'm going to tell you about. And that awesome truth is you're going to come before God one day. And you're going to be face to face with Christ, the judge. And based upon how you lived, you will be rewarded. That's an encouragement to the Corinthians. And if you think about it, it seems like it doesn't fit there. But it does. It's a deep encouragement. And therefore, that's the encouragement I want to give um, Good News Congregation. 
Um, Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Don't lose heart. Don't be moved. Give yourselves wholeheartedly to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. The point here is this. If you tie in Paul's theology, you follow the strand of uh, Scripture, I think Paul says it perfectly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, we can please Christ. We can live a life to please Christ. That, friends, makes everything meaningful. That makes everything meaningful. Yes, sometimes there's injustice in our world. That's what the text says. We live in a fallen world. You wouldn't expect anything else. But based upon that, it doesn't mean that everything is meaningless. It's only meaningless if you have a view of Elohim. But if you have a view that that says that this creator is simultaneously redeemer and consummator and the one who sacrificed himself and by the power of God's Holy Spirit you can actually please this one and God would crown his grace with more grace in your life by how you live now. Be overly righteous. Be wise. Be generous. Give yourself to the work of the Lord. Be the man, be the woman that God wants you to be because that's how we please him. And when we please him, God will crown his grace with grace because we're pleasing him by his grace. And in the end, when he recompenses us for our deeds, well, he's crowning grace upon grace then. I think that's how we're supposed to come away with this text. Because Ecclesiastes isn't a book by itself. It's really pointing forward to Creator, who is the Redeemer. And therefore, I want to encourage um, our congregation to live a certain life. Um, When it comes to generosity, be generous. And you know what? You can do it in secret. If you're generous in secret, the Lord sees, it pleases him, there'll be heavenly rewards. When you stand up for righteousness, for Christ's sake, and you're put down and overlooked, Christ will never overlook you. You've pleased him. That is not meaningless. It's the most meaningful thing that you can do because on the day of judgment, he will see and honor you. Not everyone in this, in this room can be honored, but everyone in this room can honor another person. If you do that, the Lord sees that, and you know what? You will be honored on the day of judgment. Not everyone in this world, from a worldly point of view, can be great, but everyone in this room can become the least And you know what Christianity says, if you are the least, then you are the greatest. And when will that be shown? On Judgment Day. Not everyone from a worldly perspective will be served, but everyone in this room can serve. You get the point. Everyone in this room, because of the work of Christ, can live a life pleasing to Christ. And if in our mind the judgment of Christ is there,
Well, it's the most meaningful thing. It's the only thing that renders meaning in our world. So I want to call once again and encourage Good News Church to continue to do good, like Paul says. Don't lose heart. The Lord sees. It pleases him. And when we come before the judgment seat of Christ, those good things that we have done, Christ will acknowledge. And uh, let me just say one more thing. I don't want to make this sermon uh, longer than it has to be, but um, I think we can do some of that even now. Um, and maybe a side application is this. Uh, maybe have an encouraging congregation. As we see people really seeking to please the Lord, I think affirmation in that goes a long, long way. Like, for instance, um, some of you guys who've committed to morning prayer, I know it's not easy. <laughs> uh, you will never regret it when you meet Christ. I know it's a struggle for some of you to go on missions. From an eternal perspective, do you think you will ever regret it? I know for some of us it's a struggle to raise a family in the city. And you love this city. You think you're ever going to regret that? If you have a view of Elohim, you might. But if God is Yahweh, Christ, Jesus the Lord, it is not a life of regret at all. Uh, so may in the next seasons of your life um, have that thought uh, not as a scare tactic you know I'm not trying to be a fear mongering here at all um, because within that same chapter the Apostle Paul says the love of Christ compels me to no longer live for myself but to live for the one who gave himself for me uh, for Paul this is encouragement rooted in love not rooted in fear uh, I want you to know you can please God, my brothers and sisters. And for that reason, let's please him. Let's bow our heads in prayer and uh, reflect as the worship team uh, comes, us, comes and leads us in a song of response.